when I walk across the street with my three-year-old daughter, I'll hold her hand. I want to keep her safe from oncoming traffic. And even if she wants to pull away, I'm still holding her hand tightly. I'm clinging tightly to her. You know why? Because my daughter is precious to me. I don't want anything to happen to her. So I hold on tight. Well, in our text this morning, we're going to be encouraged by the Apostle Paul to hold tightly to Jesus. And you, know, you want to know why we ought to hold tightly to Jesus? Because He's precious. What we do with Jesus determines our life and our eternity. So if He is the way, the truth, the life, we ought to hold tightly to Him. But we need to recognize there are some teachings out there that would seek to lead us away from simple faith in Christ. We're going to address these things in Colossians chapter 2. So turn there with me. Colossians chapter 2 as we continue our study line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful New Testament letter. We're in Colossians 2. We'll begin reading in verse 16. And we're going to read down through verse 23. And we're going to finish Colossians 2 today. Next Sunday, we will begin a Christmas series titled Fall on Your Knees. I'm excited about preaching that uh, through the month of December. Then in the new year, we'll jump back into Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. I want to ask you uh, this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy inspired, inerrant word. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. The Bible says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast. There's that word, holding fast to the head. That's Jesus. From whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we need your grace in this moment. We need you to, by your Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts so we might see the truths of Scripture and understand them and apply them to our lives. And Holy Spirit of God, we need your power. We need your wisdom to live what we learn. Lord, we don't want to be just hearers of the Word. We want to be doers of the word. So would you work in our midst to make that happen? Help us to understand what it means, what it looks like to hold fast to Jesus. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Paul wrote this letter from 
prison to a group of Christians in the first century city of Colossae. He was writing in response to a report he had heard about this church. Epaphras, the church planter, had journeyed to where Paul was in prison and told him how the church was doing. Paul heard some things that were encouraging, some good things about the church, but he also heard some things that were causes for concern. And the main thing he heard that concerned him was that false teaching had infiltrated this church. And earlier in chapter 2, as we walked through that chapter, we saw that Paul was warning the believers in Colossae against that false teaching, but he did not get very specific about what the teaching consisted of. Well, uh, today in our text, Paul gets more specific about the kind of teaching that was infiltrating this church. And we see that there are two types of false teaching that Paul warns us about here. Two types of teaching that, that pull us away from Jesus. I want to examine those two teachings, and then I want to close by answering this question. How do you hold fast to Jesus? If he's precious, if he means everything to us, if he's the way, the truth, the life, how do you hold fast to him? And we'll answer that at the end of our time together this morning. But first, let's examine these two teachings that pull uh, people away from simple faith in Jesus Christ. The first is legalism. Legalism. Look what Paul says there in chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So people were infiltrating their church, and they were saying, okay, you're following Jesus, that's great. But if you really want to be right with God, you've got to do these other things as well. And they would appeal to the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Testament uh, civil law for Israel. Now, as we think about legalism, which is a, a, an adding on to the Bible, there are two types of legalism that are in this text and that are in the church today. The first is what I call performance legalism. Performance legalism. Performance legalism says that external obedience to the commands of Scripture make you right with God. That if you're doing all the right stuff, then that's when God accepts you. If you're doing all the right things. You've got to check the boxes, and if you have all the boxes checked, God likes you more than if you don't have the boxes checked. That's called performance legalism. And that's what he's addressing here in this text. He mentions there in verse 16 two things. He mentions diets, and he mentions days. Look what it says there. No, let no one act as your judge. Let no one hold these standards over you is what he's saying. In regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. He's talking about the Old Testament law that God gave his people Israel that uh, included dietary regulations. He's saying, listen, don't let them hold that standard over you and say that the standard God had for Israel in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is the same standard he has for you as his people today. In other words, when people come in and say, you shouldn't eat this, shouldn't eat that, because it says in Leviticus, so that's not correct. And if people say that you need to keep certain days of the year as special days, because that's what they did in the Old Testament, they're not correct. So why are they not correct? Well, look what it says in verse 16. It says, let no one be your judge in regard to food, drink, or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are Old Testament regulations for the, the people of God. Not the moral law, but the sacrificial law, the civil law. He says, these things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but, or what has come, the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, the Old Testament law, the purpose of the Old Testament law was to point people to Jesus. It was to show them that God was holy and they were not. And to show them that they needed a Savior. 
Galatians 3 says the law is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ to show us how much we need forgiveness. And all of these Old Testament regulations pointed in different ways to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But now that Jesus Christ has come, the substance, not the shadow, the substance, now that he's come, fulfilled the law, died on the cross, risen from the dead so we can have access to God, we don't need to keep those regulations anymore. They've been fulfilled in Christ. And so those Old Testament laws are not the substance of the Christian faith. They're a shadow that pointed us to Christ. If, Christ, if, if, uh, if Claire walks up to me, my wife, and she's standing there, and it, we're out in the sunshine, and, and she, she has a shadow. The sun is casting a shadow on the ground. And she walks up to me. I'm not going to hug the shadow. I'm going to hug her, right? And, and when people say, you need to keep the Old Testament regulations, what they're saying is you need to experience God in the shadow, not the substance who is Jesus Christ. So they were holding up these, these Old Testament regulations saying, you've got to do these things if you really want God to accept you. Sure, all that stuff about Jesus is fine, but you also need to do these other things, even though they had been fulfilled in Christ. So we don't live under the, the, the burden of those Old Testament dietary civil regulations anymore. Those have been fulfilled in Christ. The, the substance has passed away. The shadow is here. We experience God by following Jesus, right? That, that's what Paul is saying here. So when you leave church today, if you want to go eat some ribs, have at it. All right? You want to go get catfish? Help yourself. All right? That's the shadow. We don't live under the shadow anymore. We have the substance uh, who is Christ. But what happened is these Judaizers would, would say, if you do all these things, if you check all these boxes, you give in the right way and, and fast on the right days of the week, and you, you go to the temple these days or at the synagogue these days, if you do all the right stuff, you check those boxes, God's going to like you more. That is performance legalism. And, and it's dangerous. It says, if I'm doing the external stuff, that's how I'm right with God. But really what matters is the heart, right? Our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So you know what God did? He gave us a new heart. When we embraced Jesus, he forgave us of all of our sins. And then he gave us a new heart. And we serve him based upon that new covenant relationship with him. Not not external righteousness or external acts for others to see, but based upon a heart that's in love with Jesus Christ. And so, we still experience this today. Some of you live under this burden, performance legalism. We think something like this. Well, if I get up and have my quiet time in the morning, and I spend 15 minutes in prayer and 15 minutes reading the Bible, then God's going to like me more and my day's going to go better. That's how we think, Right? Or if I do these things, if I, if, I, if, I, if I show up at church on these days, then you know, God's going to like me better. My life's going to go better. God's going to be for me in a greater way than he was not before I went to church. That's, that's performance legalism. That's treating God as a pagan deity. That if I do all the right stuff, I'm going to manipulate you, God, to do something good for me. That's not Christianity. That's performance legalism. I had a gentleman walk up to me after the first service. You know what he told me? He said, I wish I would have heard this sermon 70 years ago. He said, because growing up, I thought if I did certain things, God was going to get me. And I was living under this, this, this burden of, of performance. If I did this, God was for me. If I did this, God was against me. And, and, and I, it, just, it just, he said, it drove me crazy. He said, I got to the point where I became very hardened against the things of God. He said, that wasn't good either. So over here, I was just, I was trying to, to check all the boxes and think God's going to like me more if I check the box over here. He's saying, well, that's too much of a burden. I'm just going to ignore the things of God and do my own thing. 
That's where performance legalism will get you. I want to tell you something that is based upon the grace that God shows us. We see this in his word. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already, lo- already loves you. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less than he already loves you. He loves you with a perfect, unconditional, faithful, everlasting love. You say, wait, how do you know that? Because when Jesus died on the cross, he declared to a lost and dying world, God loves you. Romans 5 says the cross is the demonstration, the proof of the love of God for us. It's not whether we check the boxes, it's, it's the cross. The cross proves the love of God for us. So we don't serve to get God to, to accept us. We embrace Jesus, and God accepts us based upon the finished work of His Son. And once we have that relationship with Him, we serve because He does love us so much. Not to get Him to love us, but because we have that relationship with Him. See the difference there? We've got to be careful of performance legalism. It infiltrated the church in Colossae. But there's another type of legalism. It's what I call man-made legalism. Man-made legalism says you must keep these additional rules. So you have the Bible, but we're going to give you some additional rules if you really want to be right with God. Look what happens in verse, verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you, it says, or deciding against you or disqualifying you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Now, self-abasement speaks of, of harsh treatment to your body, foregoing comforts and the pleasures of life to, to discipline your body because that's going to give you an experience with God. That's what people were saying. Look what it says down in verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees, man-made rules, such as don't handle that, don't taste that, don't touch that. They all refer to things destined to perish with use. In accordance with, these things are in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. See the difference there? So we have the Bible. These are the commandments of God. 1 John 5 says that his commandments are not burdensome. God gives us commandments to to help us experience what's best for our life. They're not burdensome. They're not meant to weigh us down. But over on top of the biblical commandments, we see that people will add some commandments to it. And those commandments become a burden. Look what he says. These are matters, verse 23, which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. It looks real spiritual. In self-made religion, it's religion that's made up in the minds of men. Self-made religion, self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body. So he's saying you have these folks coming into your church saying, if you really want to experience God, you need to fast this number of days. You need to forego this comfort, forego this pleasure. Self-abasement. We see this today in monasticism. The idea that you can you know, check into a monastery and, and take a vow of poverty and you sleep on a hard wooden bed, and you eat a very strict diet, if you do all those things, that's when you really experience God in His fullness. If I, if I forgo these things, if I deny myself these things, that's when I'll experience God. Listen, that's a man-made idea. And, and people were, were coming up with these man-made commandments and holding them over the heads of the Colossians as a standard for them to live by. Now, man-made legalism... It's still rampant today. We see it in our churches all the time. Where people take the Bible and they add commandments on top of the Bible and they make their commandments more important than the biblical commandments. That's dangerous, right? Very dangerous. When I was pastoring my, my last church, I had a young man come in. He was probably early 20s at the time. And he 
He came, he just wanted to talk to somebody. So this young man came in, and he lived a really, really, living a very difficult life, had a lot of things going on, had some addiction issues and some broken relationships, and I mean, he was just in turmoil. And as I talked to him, he told me he was a member of a church, a faithful member, there every week. And so we began to meet just every week to just begin to unpack, you know, what was going on in his life and did some biblical counseling with him and things of that nature and try to encourage him and help him. He came in one week and he told me, he said, I'm sorry I'm wearing jeans. And I thought, what? So I'm sorry I'm wearing jeans. And he told me about the previous week's sermon at his church he attended. He said, in that sermon, the pastor spent the entire time preaching about how men should not wear jeans to church. And I thought, this guy's life is falling apart. He needs Jesus. He needs the Holy Spirit of God to transform his life. He needs the Word of God to guide him to be a lamp into his feet, a light into his path. He needs the power of God to touch him in a major way. He's going to church and hearing sermons about men wearing jeans to church. What a travesty. You know why? Because you won't find that commandment in the Bible. If you say, you shouldn't wear jeans at church, show me it in the Bible. Maybe you'll find it in first opinions, but, but you won't find it anywhere else. That's a man-made commandment. And that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And, and, and what we ha- have happened is a pastor talking more about that man-made rule than the rules of the Bible, the commands of the Bible. And that is dangerous. But we see it everywhere in our culture. By the way, if you think that wearing jeans to church is wrong, you've never been to a place in your life where all you had was a pair of jeans. I bet if you got to the place in your life when all you had was one pair of jeans, I bet you wouldn't think it's that big of a deal. I'll, go, I'll move on. All right. I'll move on. I have people say occasionally, we, you know, uh, we invite them to church, or Claire, my wife invites them to church, people say, well, I don't have anything to wear. And we say, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are, are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, come to me if you are well dressed. He says, come to me. We need to get past this idea of saying, these are the man-made rules. If you keep all these things, that's when you really experience God. No, no, that's man made legalism and it's ramping our churches things about what we wear and the music we listen to the publication date of the songs we sing or the instruments we use and it's dangerous because they're they're man-made commandments they're not found in the bible and and to be real honest with you i'm not interested in talking about stuff that's not in the bible i'm not i don't want to live under that burden i don't life's too short amen too short but man-made legalism is a real problem now here are the issues with legalism here here are the problems with it let me give you three very quickly number one it encourages feelings of superiority legalism encourages feelings of superiority so if someone walks in with jeans and the people don't have on jeans look down and said look at that guy he didn't have on jeans i mean he has on jeans i don't have on jeans i'm better than him that's a silly example but that's how people think if it's a man-made rule and they're keeping the rule and someone else is not, the tendency is to look down on them and say, oh, they're not keeping the rule. And legalism, man-made legalism, encourages this superiority. 
Like, we're in the club, man, we understand what's going on, we got, it, we got it happening, we've got it figured out, and everybody's not doing it our way doesn't have it figured out. It encourages feelings of superiority. Think about the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They looked down. Remember the story of, of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector? The, 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 the Pharisee looked at the tax collector and said, thank God I'm not like that man. That's legalism. That's what it does to our lives. Secondly, it elevates the doctrines of man above the Bible. Verse 21, he says there, Why do you submit to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? So you have false teachers in your church, Colossae, that are trying to get you to live under the burden of man-made rules, and they're elevating their doctrine, they're elevating their teaching above the Bible. That is very, very dangerous. It elevates the doctrines of man above the Bible. Number three, it discourages trust in Jesus and encourages trust in self. Look what he says in verse 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, self-abasement. Look at the word self. In other words, man-made rules can be kept in your own strength. Self, I'm going to do what's necessary to make myself right with God. And what it does is it discourages trust in Jesus, the only one that can make you right with God. Man-made legalism always leads people away from Jesus, not towards him. That's why Paul said they're not holding fast to the head. They're not holding fast to Jesus. Those are the problems with legalism. But there's another false teaching out there that leads people away from Jesus. And it's not legalism, it's mysticism. Mysticism, Paul uh, deals with that teaching here in this text. Look what he says in verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you or disqualifying you, saying you're not living to the right standards. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, that's neglecting comforts of the flesh so that you can be right with God, that's a false notion. And the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen and inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So there are some teachers in the church of Colossae that were saying, okay, we've had some visions, and we're going to lay out these visions for you and tell you what you ought to do. We have a word from God, because God has given us these visions. He said these visions came as a result of their fleshly mind. They dreamed them up themselves. Interesting, isn't it? He's speaking here of mysticism. He said, wait, what is, what is mysticism? Mysticism refers to an approach to God that claims immediate knowledge or revelation from God by direct personal experience. Mysticism refers to an approach to God that claims immediate knowledge or revelation from God by direct personal experience. Now, there are two ways we see this in the church today. We see mysticism played out. Number one, we see mysticism in the mishandling of the Bible. Mysticism says, okay, the Bible has a secret message for you. And if you just kind of dig a little bit deeper, you'll find the secret message that's there just for you. You need to look for that. And, and you haven't really had good time in God's Word until you find that secret message. And every time you read a passage, you're looking for that secret message from God just for your life. Now that's dangerous. But let me give you an example. Let's say we have a, a young lady in our church and 
she's uh, thinking about you know, finding a, a, a godly young man to marry. She wants to find someone, wants God to bring someone in her life that's going to be a, a, a godly husband for her. And so one day this young lady is reading Matthew chapter 2, the story of Jesus' birth. And she reads this verse. Wise men came from the east. And she goes, wait a minute. God showed me that my wise man, my godly man, he's going to come from the east. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to, hey, if I have to choose between the west coast to go to college or the east coast, I'm going to the east coast. Because my wise man is going to come from the east. You say, wait, that's silly. It happens. It happens. People use the Bible like that. Just these very secret messages for them. I want to give you something that's really going to help you and keep you within the, the rails of biblical orthodoxy, if you will. A, a, a passage of Scripture can never mean today what it did not mean back then when it was written. I'll say it again, it's so important, write it down. A passage of Scripture can never mean today what it did not mean back then. When Matthew wrote that verse down in Matthew chapter 2, what he was writing is this. Wise men came from the east to come and bring gifts to Jesus. They followed the star. That's what they were saying. It was a historical detail. It was not a secret message for a, a young lady looking for a godly husband. Right? See, why that's silly. I'm telling you, that's how people use their Bible. And so a passage can never mean something today that it did not mean back then. So you say, wait, how do I relate to the Bible if there's no secret message? You learn God's word. You learn his plan of redemption. You learn his commandments, his precepts, his principles. And then you take those things and apply them to your life to guide your everyday living and decision making. Use the principles to guide your life. You don't look for a secret message. That is, that is dangerous because two people can look at the same exact verse and come away with two different secret messages, right? And that's not good. Then you have chaos ensue. And so that's one way we see mysticism in, in the mishandling of the Bible. Number two, we see mysticism in the idea of extra revelation. So I have... Genesis to Revelation, the Bible, the Word of God, 66 books. God's spoken to me, the canon of Scripture. But God has some other things He wants to say to me. And He's going to speak some very specific words to me to guide my life. That is mysticism. Now, I, here, here, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God doesn't guide our life. He absolutely does. One of my favorite songs is All the Way My Savior Leads Me. I love that song. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Savior like a shepherd, lead us. I love those songs. They speak of the, the guiding activity of God in our life. God, God guides us. I believe he moves to the impression of our heart. He, he can bring things to mind that we need to have in our mind. He brings memorized scripture to the service of our heart and our mind when we need them the most to make wise decisions. But I do not hold the idea that God's going to give us extra revelation where he speaks something directly to us that needs to be added to the, back of Revel the book of Revelation. Something that, because listen, if God speaks a specific word to you, shouldn't it be on the same level as the Bible? If God said it, shouldn't it be on the same level as the Bible? And that's dangerous because then we have people start adding things on to the Bible. Anything goes. And so we see mysticism in the idea of extra revelation. I'm not saying you can't experience God. I'm not saying you can't have some, some, some miraculous encounters with God in certain things where God works in the providences of your life. But what I'm saying is this. The idea of looking for extra revelation is dangerous. That's what was happening in this church. Visions. God spoke to me through a vision. And I'm going to tell you what he said. And you live according to what 
I tell you, God said. Now, now let me tell you the problems with mysticism. Why mysticism can be so dangerous. Number one, experience is subjective. It's subjective. Look what he says there in verse 18. Colossians 2, 18, he says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So he's saying there, this, this gentleman, whoever he was, was in the church saying, God has said this based upon the vision he gave me. And Paul says the vision he had was something he dreamed up in his own mind. It's subjective, and that, that can be very problematic. Because two people can say, I had a vision, I had a vision. They can say, something to, they can say to, two totally different things. Who do you go with? Who do you go with? So this idea that God's going to speak d- directly to me some specific word that, that, that I'm going to hold out for you to follow is, is problematic. Experience is subjective. In other words, you might have a vision, and God may... You know, God can use dreams, visions to communicate. I don't, I don't, I don't deny that, but, but, but it may be the sinus medication you took the night before. Right? So you've got to be very careful. You've got to be very, very careful about what you, what you uh, envision. And then when, when, you, when you had this experience, bringing it to the church and saying, I had this experience, you need to have this experience too. If you really want to experience God, you need to do, have what I have happen to you would happen to me. That's mysticism. Experience is subjective. Number two, it subtly undermines the authority of Scripture. Look in verse 18. It says, Taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So he's saying you need to, you need to deny your, your worldly comforts. You need to worship angels. You need to do these different things. And he says he's inflated by his fleshly mind. The, the source of his vision was not God. The source of his vision was his own flesh. So when someone holds out mysticism as the way you relate to God, they are undermining the authority of Scripture. I want to submit to you that the Scripture is the way we relate to God, through Jesus Christ. Not by seeking these, these other experiences. I want to give you an example, and I, I want to be very, very careful here, because I know that this book I'm about to mention may be a book that, that you've used and, 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 and possibly profited from, and so I'm not trying to offend you, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I am trying to raise some, some flags in your mind and heart to think through these issues from a biblical perspective and take Colossians 2, 16-23 and apply it to this situation. The, the book, and the reason I mention it is because I got a, a Lifeway catalog this week with Christmas gifts, and this book is everywhere. There's one for uh, teens, and there's one for kids, and there's, I mean, it's, it's books everywhere. It's called uh, Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. And, and what she says in her introduction is this. She says that, uh, in my quiet time, I sit still, and Jesus speaks to me some very specific messages just for me. And I've taken those messages from Jesus to me, and I've written them down, and now they're for the masses. So you can have Jesus speaking directly to you. And they're very specific messages, even with commands in there that Jesus Christ gives us. I read an article recently uh, by Kathy Keller. She's uh, a pastor's wife for Pastor Tim Keller, uh, leads Redeemer Church in New York City. And she wrote an article raising some concerns about this book or about this approach to God. And here's what she said. Although in the introduction she acknowledges, Sarah Young acknowledges, that she knew that these writings were not inspired as Scripture is, and a few pages later she says, the Bible is, of course, the only inerrant Word of God. So she says those things. She said, well, that sounds pretty good. But Kathy Keller asked this question. 
then why are the messages she received from Jesus put in the first person? If it is not truly Jesus speaking, she could have said, Jesus wants you to come to him and have rest in him. That's a biblical principle, right? Applied to all of our lives. That's a good thing. Come to him, find rest in him. Instead of saying this, in her book she says, keep your antenna, this is Jesus speaking according to Sarah Young, keep your antenna out to pick up even the faintest glimmer of my presence. And these words are attributed directly to Jesus. Even though they don't sound like anything else he has ever said. But if Jesus really said that, if he said, keep your antenna out for my presence, all right, if he, if he actually said those words, then why are those words not on the same level as the Bible? It's a good question, isn't it? Good question. She goes on to say, they, the words have to be received on the same level as Scripture, or, here's the alternative, she has put her own thoughts into the mouth of Jesus. Miss Young says in the introduction, here's what I wanted you to hone in on. Miss Young says in the introduction to Jesus' calling, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Now, here's my, my goal as a pastor. My goal is not to say, read this book, don't read this book, use this book. Don't. I don't want to get to that, that point. But my goal is that the Holy Spirit would, would, would grow us all in discernment. So that when we read somebody say, I read my Bible, but I wanted more, red flags would rise up in our mind and heart. Think about what she just said. Yeah, I read my Bible daily, but I wanted more. More than the Word of God? Truth with no mixture of error? Genesis to Revelation? More than that? The Bible says that, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16, he took human instruments and he breathed through them. So they were, when they were writing down the words we have in our Bible, they were writing down the very words of God. And she says, I wanted more than that? To me, that is problematic. And I hope that you see that is, that is troublesome. She goes on to write, Kathy Keller, the great Bible teacher James Montgomery Boyce, late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church and author of many books about the Bible, wrote, that the great issue of our day would not be the authority of the Bible, but its sufficiency. Would we trust it to be all that we need for life and godliness, or would Christians turn to other revelation and experiences? Jesus' calling, she writes, represents just that trend. Young had the Bible, but found it insufficient. She wanted more, and that is dangerous. And so um, here's what I'm telling you. Be very careful about someone that says God has communicated directly to them. And, well, she said, well, it's a personal message. Then why'd she publish it? Why'd she publish it? To where thousands and thousands can access it. Why, why is it on the shelves at Lifeway and in, in catalogs if it's just a personal message, right? Listen to me. I'm grateful for my Bible. I don't need more. God has spoken to me in his word, and that is enough. And so the problem with mysticism is, it, it subtly undermines the authority of Scripture. Because I can, I can almost guarantee you that there are people that are reading that book that aren't reading their Bible. And they're reading these messages that Sarah Young writes down, but they're not reading their Bible. We need to be careful. Another thing, mysticism makes people feel inferior. And this is huge in the church today. Makes people feel inferior. Look what it says there in verse 18. Let no one 
keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated. That word inflated means puffed up. So these folks that had these visions, these experiences, these mystical experiences were saying, hey, we had these experiences, you didn't. And it puffed them up. It made them proud. And by virtue of that fact, it made other people feel inferior. The word translated defrauding there in verse 18 could be translated disqualify. It was the word used of a referee or an umpire to say, you're disqualified. You didn't have visions like I did. That's what was happening in the church in Colossae. And I've seen the same thing happen in the church today. You have someone that talks with very spiritual language. God told me this, or God told me that. Or I had this experience, and, and this experience. And you say, well, I never had that experience. Does, does God not want me to experience him like that? And man, I guess I'm just a normal old, you know, boring Christian because I'm not having all those things happen that guy's talking about over there. And it makes the normal Christian life seem dull and boring and lifeless when the normal Christian life is where you find abundant life. You relate to God through Jesus Christ, you come to know him as your Lord and Savior. You come to know the one true God. And then you relate to him by walking with him daily. Being in his word. But when people talk very, use very spiritual language, it makes other people feel inferior. Like, I've never had that happen, so I must be a, you know, a, a, a C-minus Christian. Here's another thing. This is important. Mysticism denies the sufficiency of Christ. Look in verse 19. It says there... They're taking their stand on visions inflated without cause by their fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. So instead of relating to God through Jesus Christ, they're relating to God based upon these mystical experiences. And as long as they're having these mystical experiences, they don't need Jesus. Instead of holding on to Him, they're relating to God based upon dreams and visions and extra-biblical revelation. And it denies the sufficiency of Christ. They were not holding fast to the head. I want you to understand very clearly, the way you experience God is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Period. That's why Paul says, hold fast to the head. Hang on to him. He's precious. He gives the eternal life. He gives abundant life. Hold on to him. So here's the bottom line. Number one, legalism and mysticism don't work. Paul said that. Look what he says in verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. It sounds very wise to be legalistic or mystical. They have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Listen to me. Legalism and mysticism don't help anyone grow in holiness. They're not, they, don't, they, they don't get the job done is what Paul's saying. They don't deal with your fleshly indulgence. The way you deal with your fleshly indulgence, the way you deal with, with your flesh and have a transformed life is by following Jesus and letting him change you daily as you walk with him. That's how you grow in your faith. So legalism and mysticism don't work. They don't get the job done. They don't deliver on what they promise. And then we are called to hold fast to Jesus. That's what we're called to do there in verse 19. So here's the question. How do you hold fast to Jesus? Quickly, how do you hold fast to Jesus Christ? How do you make sure you're clinging to him? Number one, be careful of who speaks into your life. Look in verse 16. Verse 16. Paul writes, Therefore, let no one act as your judge. No one's to act as your judge. Don't let, don't let a legalist stand over you and tell you you've got to do all these things to be right with God. 
Don't let them speak into your life. Don't let them lead you away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Be careful who speaks in your life. Verse 18, same thing. It says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Don't let someone exclude you from, from what it means to experience God because they have a, an extra biblical teaching. Be careful who speaks in your life. If someone is speaking mysticism into your life or legalism into your life, you need to shut that down. Secondly, surrender to his lordship. Verse 19, these folks were not holding fast to the head. This speaks of Jesus Christ. He calls Jesus Christ the head here, which means he is the ruler, he's the authority, he's calling the shots, and he's saying there, by implication, you need to hold fast to the head. You need to cling to him. Surrender to his lordship. Surrender to his will and his way. In other words, you experience God through Jesus Christ. You hold fast to the head. Third, trust and obey. Now, I want you, if you hadn't heard a word I've said, I want you to come in real close for a minute because this is very important. How do you experience God? How do you have intimacy with God? By trusting and obeying. Look what he says in verse 19. They're not holding fast to the head from whom, from Jesus, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. In other words, if you'll just connect with Jesus, trust him as your Lord and Savior, and obey him, he will grow you. You will experience God through that simple relationship of trusting and obeying. Uh, hold your place, but turn to John chapter 14 with me. I've read this recently in my quiet time, and it's such a powerful passage. John 14, verse 21. This verse, by the way, is the secret to experiencing God. And guess what? It's not a secret because it's right there in the Bible. Amen? But if I wrote a book called The Secret of Experiencing God, I bet you'd sell a lot of copies. All right. Now look what it says in John 14, verse 21. 14, 21. Jesus says, he who, has a, he who has my commandments and keeps them, who knows what I say and obeys it, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. That's how you express your love to God, by doing what he says. The one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. You want to experience a sweeter, more intimate relationship with God? Do what he says. If you do what he says, he says, Jesus and his Father, God the Father, will come to you in a special way. That's pretty cool, right? If you trust and obey, God will disclose himself to you. You'll experience a, a deeper fuller, uh, powerful uh, relationship and intimacy with God. So trust and obey. That's how you experience God. Trust and obey. Think about it like this. I thought about this this week, and I thought it was interesting. Over in the Great Commission, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then he said, he didn't say, he didn't say, teach them how to get a word from God. Did he? What did Jesus say? Teach them all I've commanded you. And I'm with you always to the end of the age. So how do you help a new believer that's following Jesus? How do you help them experience God? Not through legalism. Not through mysticism. You teach them the commandments of the Bible. And if they'll learn those and obey those, that's when they'll experience a sweet 
deep, intimate communion with God. It's just that simple. And listen, that may not sell a lot of books. That's straight from the Bible. That's how you experience the Father. That's how you experience Christ, by knowing what He says and then obeying it. There's a third thing here. Or sorry, fourth thing. How do you hold fast to Jesus? You understand your position in Christ. We're going to close with this. Look in verse 20 of Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verse 20. Paul says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but if you'll refer back to a sermon a few weeks ago, that phrase, elementary principles of the world, speaks of the elemental spirits of the world. That's, a, a, I believe, a better translation in context. So it speaks there of the teachings that had infiltrated the church in Colossae that were influenced by demons. They, 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 were, they were supported by the demonic realm. And he's saying there, you've died with Christ. You've been united with Christ. You're a, a Christian now. You're a follower of Jesus. You embrace him as Lord and Savior. And by his power, you die to those principles. You don't have to live according to those teachings anymore, is what he's saying. Paul's saying here, now that you're united with Christ, you do not belong to Satan. This world is not your home. You are a child of the one true king. You are a citizen of heaven. You don't need legalism to experience God. You don't need mysticism to experience God. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus and obey him, and that's when you experience God. You have a personal relationship with, with the Lord because of the finished work of Christ on your behalf, not because of your performance, not because of your experience, you have a relationship with God based upon what Jesus Christ did for you. Period. If you're saved today, it's not because you're good or you've earned it or experienced it. If you're saved today, it's because you trusted what Jesus did for you is your only hope. I want to ask the question this way. You are redeemed. You are free. You are in Christ. Why would you voluntarily place yourself under the bondage of legalism and mysticism? Instead of the freedom and the joy of knowing God, knowing what He says, and then doing it. <laughs> Isn't that simple? Know God, know what He says, and do it. That's when you will experience God in His fullness. So Paul's warning us here. Hold fast to Jesus. He's the key. Don't be pulled away by mysticism. Don't be, don't be pulled away by legalism. Hold on to Jesus. It's all about Him.